I love seeing those blue t-shirts. They're like, I don't know what you're talking about. There's blue t-shirts all over this room. If you got a blue t-shirt on that says image, raise your hand. Let everybody see it. This is our centrifuge uh, participants back from camp. And guys, there's nothing that fires me up more than seeing them here today with their shirts on. VBS, Centrikid, Centrifuge. There has been so much good God has done in our church this month. Baptisms, professions of faith, loving on families. I've been blown away and amazed. Since January, we have had 60 people go discover Ebenezer and join our church. 60 people. That's amazing. And you know, at the same time though, it's humbling because who are we that God would allow us the opportunity? Who are we that God would send people our way that we could love on? And so I want to teach you to do something. I don't know how many of you have ever done this before, and I may make some of you uncomfortable. It's okay. You know, sometimes I'll say, hey, bow your head and pray. Has anybody ever asked you to stop for a moment and let's praise the Lord together? Either to clap or to raise your hands and to say praise the Lord. So right now, we're going to thank the Lord for what God has done. Thank you, Lord, so much. He is awesome. He is full of glory and worthy to be praised. And, you know, and at the same time, back months ago when I was interviewing and I met with the search team and the admin team and, and the, the groups, uh, group leaders and all these other things, one of the things I kept hearing over and over again was this desire to deepen discipleship. The need for discipleship, to grow as a disciple. At the same time, though, I had learned that we had put it in our budget to add another staff member this year. And so we began working on a job description for a pastor of discipleship back in the early winter. We began to float that out and to talk to different people. And I'm just telling you today, we've had some conversations and some interviews. And hopefully over the next few weeks, we're going to be able to present some information to you guys. So I'm, number one, I'm excited. But number two, I'm asking you to pray and I'm asking you to listen, because as, as the next few weeks unfold, there's going to be a lot of things that you're going to need to, to be in tune with. But I'm excited, guys, because what that means is not only are we bringing somebody in whose focus is to work with our groups, work with assimilation, work to help us become disciple makers, it also means we'll have another pastor on our staff. And the more pastors we have on our staff, the more effectively we can shepherd our people. I don't believe I'm the only one. I'm just one of many. And it takes that. If we're going to reach Tekoa, we need, we, need a, we need a team. And so you be praying over the next few weeks as that unfolds. I'd like to ask you in your Bible or your device to go to Hebrews chapter 3. Just, I told Caleb I, I wanted to go buy fire hydrant to put on the front of the stage because I feel like the two messages I've done listening to Fred's message last week, and now we're in this fourth message of 10, you're drinking water out of a fire hydrant. And so I'm just apologizing right now. Today, <laughs> buckle your seatbelt. <laughs> it's going to be a wild ride. How many of you have ever uh, been in a situation where you're at a, at a dinner or at a restaurant and maybe your kid or someone else's kid blows a gasket? You know, maybe they come out and the ketchup's touching the, touching the beans or something weird like that, and, and your kid just loses their mind. Imagine the scene if you're, you're there at dinner and you're sitting there at the table, you've got your menu, 
you're trying to decide what you're gonna eat and all of a sudden you start picking up on a little commotion over to your side. The food had just been brought to the table and the child sitting at that table does not want what was brought to them. And so they begin to pitch a fit. And this distraught mother who's doing everything that she can do to kind of bring the child down off this catastrophic ledge begins to offer the child something else. Well, let me just get you something. They can bring you something else, but it's too late. The child begins to, to scream and to kick and to, to throw the food, yelling at the parents in a tyrannical outburst simply because he or she did not get what they wanted, what was expected. And finally, desperate and exhausted to save their self-image, the parents wrestled the child out of the restaurant, kicking and screaming. Now, I know you're thinking right now, well, if that were my child. If you don't have children, you have never been humbled this way. Because I can tell you, it's not a matter of if, but when your child will do it. And they'll do it when you least expect it. But, but let's be honest, though. If we could go back to our three-year-old selves, we'd probably see that we did the same thing. In fact, right now, some of you are sitting in here today and you're wrestling with the tension that there's things going on in your life that you didn't expect, that you didn't want, that came at the wrong time, and your three-year-old internal self is pitching a fit and throwing food. You're just keeping it together on the outside. I remember being at a wedding and I was watching the, the, the bride's mother just sitting there. Her face was twitching because she wanted so bad to cry, but she didn't want to cry and make a spectacle of herself. And you and I are, are no different. We, we have this internal three-year-old self that wants what we want when we want it, don't we? It's like a rage. It's the rage monster off Dude Perfect. Some of you have seen the rage monster. My kids are laughing. How many of you kids watched Dude Perfect and seen the Rage Monster? The Rage Monster is this character who, when things don't go the way they expect, they just start breaking everything. And you and I have a Rage Monster inside of all of us, and the children of Israel were no different. As they departed Egypt during the Exodus, for 400 years the Israelites had lived in Egypt, beginning in the land of Goshen. At the end of Genesis, we find the Israelites migrating there. In Genesis 15, 13, God told Abram, he said, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. After they move and migrated to Goshen, we find out in Exodus 1, 8, that a new Pharaoh comes to power that didn't know Joseph, Jacob's son, who served as a magistrate there over the land. And being concerned over the size of the Israelites, they begin to put taskmasters over them and effectively enslave them. In fact, another Pharaoh became so scared of the Hebrews that they begin to take their male children and throw them into the river to kill them. You think you've got it bad. But then God raises up Moses. And God says to Moses, say, look, I, I've remembered the affliction and the suffering of my people. He told Abram, how long? 400 years. And he said, now the time has come for our people to go to Canaan, to a land flowing with milk and honey. And so Moses goes before Pharaoh and begins to petition him to let his people go. And through a series of 10 plagues, culminating with the 10th plague, which, which killed the firstborn male child across the land, Pharaoh reluctantly let them go. 
And Moses recalls and recounts the words of God in Exodus 12, 40 through 41, that the Israelites were in Egypt 430 years, just as God had said. But the drama wasn't over. The Egyptians came to their senses and had a change of heart and they pursued the Israelites to the Red Sea. And the people began to grumble and complain. Say grumble and complain. Yeah, our kids do too. I don't want to eat here. Why do we have to eat here? And they said, why have you brought us out to the wilderness to die? They said they would rather be enslaved. Then in one final moment of power and victory, God parts the Red Sea and the people cross on dry ground. The Egyptians pursued them into the sea, but then God closes up the sea on the entire army, eradicating them, and the Israelites stand on the other shore, victorious and a nation. However, no sooner than they leave the sea, in the very next chapter, they begin to grumble and complain. Say grumble and complain. Let me give you a synopsis. In Exodus 15, through 25, they grumbled for water. So they came to a place called Marah, which means bitterness, where God told them to throw a tree into the bitter water and make it drinkable. Then they complained for food. So God sends manna, this flaky stuff that would come down each morning. God gave them instructions on how to gather, but each day this manna would appear and it provided sustenance. Now where are they going? They're going to a land flowing with milk and honey, but this is the crucible that God had chosen for them to go through. But then they complained for meat, and God sent quail, and they found the manna again. But as they continued to journey, they came to Rephidim, and they again found need for water. And the people contended, saying, Why now have you, Moses, brought us up to Egypt to kill us and our children? And there at Horeb, Moses strikes a rock, and water comes out. And in Exodus seventeen seven, it says this. Pay real close attention to these two places. He named the place Massa. And Meribah, because the, of the quarreling of the sons of Israel. Now check this out. Because they tested the Lord and said, is the Lord with us or among us or not? How many of you have found yourself in desperate times and desperate places and you're going, Lord, where are you? Why have you left me here all alone? Why aren't you doing what I ask you to do? And each step the Israelites missed that the very God who just miraculously and supernaturally brought them out of Egypt had the ability to provide them the same way. They did not trust the word of God. Say the word of God. If God said it and God promised it, he will do it. But the Israelites, in their impatience, in their impulsivity, chose to not believe the word of God and hang in there as he was leading them on this journey. So they continued, and they came to Mount Sinai, where Moses goes up on the mountain to get the Ten Commandments, the covenant of God, and it's burning, and it's an awesome scene. But even in that... Their impatience led them to turn to Aaron and say, yo, Aaron, we want a golden calf. And they make an idol and name it Jehovah, Yahweh God. They make an idol out of God and declare a feast. And at this point, God said, you know what? I'm done. I'm going to wipe them out. And Moses pleads 
for the people and they're saved, God holds back that wrath and they continue that journey and they set toward the land of Canaan. And then we jump over a few books and we come to the book of Numbers. And in Numbers 11, after celebrating the Passover, now it's been a while since they left Egypt, they're celebrating Passover, which was to remind them of the Passover, the 10th plague, when the angel went over the homes because of the marking of the blood. And we hear the people grumble and complaining yet again. The people recall the kind of food that they had, being tired of the manna, wanting to go back to Egypt where they had melons. As they enter the land of Paran in the southern border of the land of Canaan, in Numbers 13 and 14, Moses sends out spies, one from each tribe, to look out the land, the land flowing with milk and honey. And when they came back, they were like, you're right, it's abundant, it's awesome. But 10 of the 12, not Joshua and not Caleb, but 10 of the 12 came back and said, we can't do it. The people are too great. The Nephilim are there, the giants. We can't do it. And the congregation begins again to grumble and complain and saying, you've brought us all the way out here to kill us in the wilderness. That was the same shame tactic they have used on Moses during this whole journey. You've brought us out here to kill us. Well, you know the irony? That's exactly what happened to them. Because in, in, in that text, he's, uh, God is speaking to Moses and says, Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs, which I performed in Egypt, in the wilderness, yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not listened to my voice. Remember the first warning in Hebrews? Heed the voice. Heed the message. And have not listened to my voice, shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of them any of those who spurned me see it. For 40 years, the Israelites will wander in the wilderness and not go into the promised land until all of those who disbelieved God died. That's a sobering story, isn't it? And what of us today? We've been talking about Jesus and how Jesus is better than angels, bringing a better message, the better man now what we're going to find out, he's better than Moses and he's the better high priest. This Jesus who came to the earth, died on the cross, and was raised again, who has this gospel message for you and for me, it's extended out for us, the very word of God. What is there left for us if we choose to spurn that message? What is there left for you and for me if we choose to ignore that gospel? What is there left for you and I if we choose to live in our sin and eat the melons in the bondage of sin rather than finding the freedom that Jesus offers for us in the gospel? What is there left for us? David would reflect on this in Psalm 95. You can write that in your notes and go back and look at it again later. But the Hebrew writer is going to quote the second half of this psalm in Hebrews 3. But I wanted to read the whole psalm to you because it's a psalm of worship. Listen to these words. Oh, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God and is a great king above all gods. He's high and he's mighty and he's lifted up. Why? Why is he high and mighty and lifted up? This reason. In whose hands are the depths of the earth. The peaks of the mountains are also his. The sea is his. For it is he who made it. And his hands formed 
the dry ground. He's high and mighty and lifted up in the king of the universe because he's the creator God. Check this out. Come, here's the invitation. Let us worship and bow down. Submission. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. I don't know if any of us would know how to act in front of a king. We've never had one. But this is how you act in front of a king. You kneel. For he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. So David's writing this to the Israelites. But now the tone changes. Today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah. And do not as in the day of Massah in the wilderness. Where was that? When Moses struck the rock because they were complaining. When your fathers tested me, when they tried me, though they had seen my work, for 40 years I loathed that generation and said that they are a people who err in their heart and they do not know my ways. Therefore, I swore in my anger, truly they will not enter my rest. How does all that fit together? Here was a generation of people who watched God miraculously bring them through the exodus, provide for them in the wilderness, and yet they still chose to not believe. The God who created the universe, the majesty of the mountains that we see, the the beauty of the sea, and all the things that we enjoy, even in this fallen world, there is still the beauty of God's creation. And yet when we look at that, we fail to recognize it belongs to God. And when we look in a mirror, we belong to God. Unless in my heart I choose to not be His. Unless I choose to not believe in the words of our God. And the sad thing is, is the very thing that the Israelites complained about, which was dying in the wilderness, is the very thing that they did. Isn't that ironic? They kept accusing Moses of bringing them to the wilderness to die, but yet in their disbelief, God chose to judge them by letting them die in the wilderness. We too stand in the same way today. Tempted because we're in a crisis moment of faith. We have an identity crisis. We don't know who we are or where we're going because we don't know really who Jesus is. And maybe, just maybe, that's why the writer of Hebrews is trying to spell this out. The first time I preached through Hebrews, I titled it Better Than the Best Thing. Because all throughout this book, anything you want to bring up, Jesus is better than that. And that's for us today. In fact, in the first verse, he says this, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, this is chapter 3, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Say confession. The difference between a profession and a confession is this. If there's any professors in the room, I'm sorry. But this is what it means. A professor tells you what they know. And it's the same thing. A profession is saying what you might know or what you might hold. But a confession means that you hold what you know dear. You are pledging allegiance to that fact. You are not just trusting, but you are entrusting yourself. When we reject Jesus Christ, we reject the word of God. We're not entrusting ourselves to what God has said. And when we reject the word of God, we reject Jesus Christ. They're one and the same. Now let me stop here and just remind you of something. We can't save ourselves. God saves us. 
He sent Jesus to die for our sins, to be raised again, to defeat death. And the invitation is for us to believe, to have faith in him, to pledge allegiance to Christ. One author said it like this, to respond to the gospel in a saving fashion is to pledge faith or allegiance to Jesus as the Christ, the forgiving and the restoring King. Praying a certain prayer, studying scripture, or attending a worship service is not sufficient. A person must pledge fealty, commitment, dedication to King Jesus and persist in that profession. That's what it means to confess Jesus as our Lord. And so as the writer of Hebrews continues in chapter 3, he'll quote that psalm. Then he gets to verse 12. And I want to ask you to stand as we read these four verses together and unpack them in the next few moments. He says this, but take care, brothers. In fact, if you want to write in your Bible, you can say, look out. I mean, put it in all capital letters. Look out, brothers, that there not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, which means daily, as long as it is still called today. Where did he get that word today from? From Psalm 95. So that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. But if you look back in verse 7, the today was in regard to hearing the voice of the Lord. Verse 14, for if we have become partakers of Christ, if we hold, fa- we, if we hold fast to the beginning of our assurance firm until the end, while it is said Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts when they, as when they did when they provoked me. Let's pray. Lord, I pray you set aside our agendas, our ideas, and let us just look at this passage in its context. And that when we leave today, that we'll be more committed to following Jesus than we ever have before. In Jesus' name. Amen. I love what uh, Chuck Swindoll said about the focus that the writer of Hebrews begins to bring us to here. He said he highlights the first and the last words of the quotation from Psalm 95. Two words, today and rest. The first word underscores the urgency of the warning to his audience. The first warning we've read was to take heed now, the, uh, t- uh, to, to listen now is to take heed Look out, because here's the truth. Listen to this statement. It's a very short sentence. The moment that we hear God, we should respond. Let me, let me say that again. The moment that we hear God, we should respond. If you raise kids, you know this to be true. Delayed obedience is disobedience. And it's true for you and I and our three-year-old hearts. When we're pitching a fit and we want what we want right now the way that we want it, God, when he speaks, the sovereign creator of the universe wants obedience. That's why in the new covenant, he said he's going to change our heart and put his spirit inside of us, causing us to obey his command. God wants our fealty. He wants our loyalty. He wants our commitment. He wants our obedience. And so when we begin to dig into this passage, the first two words are take care. And that word in the Greek literally means to see and act, to see something and act. Kind of like when you drive down the road and it, and it says, watch out for falling rocks. Well, what do you start doing? 
you start watching out for falling rocks. You drive around a curve and there's a, a steep embankment. So, you know, you kind of looking to see if there's something coming. Or maybe you, you drive by and there's a ditch where some rubble's laying. You're going, oh, is there some more rocks coming? You watch out. And that's what this literally means. But the other command we see in this paragraph is the word encourage. Say encourage. You can't encourage yourself. You can. But this word was written to people in the plural. Folks, we're the we're a part of the body of Christ. The church is not a building or the pews that you sit in. It's not your group or your class. It's not the Bible that's got your name stamped on it. You are the church. And the plan of God is for us to church together. And when we church together the right way, it is to encourage us. In fact, that word in its, in its root is the same word we get parakletos. Who holds that title? The Holy Spirit. We are called, like the Holy Spirit, to come alongside one another, to support one another, to lift up one another. And so we have these two commands in verses 12 and 13 that culminates with a promise in verse number 14. So point number one, if you want to follow along, we must watch out for our hearts becoming evil by disbelief. We must watch out for our hearts becoming evil by disbelief. Look back at verse number 12. Let me break that down just a little bit. Take care or look out. It's a command in the present tense, but it's plural second person. So it's saying, you all, or if you're in the South, y'all, look out. Be aware. Be aware of what? Well, he says that there not be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart. The word unbelieving literally is no faith, absence of faith. Why is that important? Well, number one, he's speaking to a group. Listen, he wouldn't have called them holy brothers if he was talking to lost people. Can we just go ahead and establish that fact? He's writing to people he's considering to be in the faith. He called them holy brothers. But he's saying, watch out that there not be among you any unbelieving or evil heart. Why? Because that kind of stuff is contagious. Look at what happened when the spies came back. Ten of the twelve of them said, nope, can't do it. God is not a man of his word. We can't go in there. He's not going to give us victory. The people are too big. There's too many of them. They actually looked at each other and said, you know what? Let's get another leader. Let's go back to Egypt. Could you imagine? Could you imagine the oppression that they would have faced? Because you got to remember, Pharaoh lost his entire army that day. The Israelites coming with their tails tucked back, going, saying, you know what? We're sorry. We shouldn't have left. Can you give us some melons? I kind of wonder if the Egyptians would have just killed them all. And they probably would have. And because of their disbelief, they would have had God fighting for them. What, what the evil is that he's looking at here, the evil of, first of all, is failing to listen. It's one thing to listen. It's another thing to act on what you hear. And that's exactly what he's pointing to right here. That when you and I allow either in ourselves or those around us to begin to entertain a lack of faith. Let me ask you something. This, this just lights my fire. When was the last time you looked at somebody and said, you know what, all things are possible with God. Don't try to talk me out of what I know God can do. Well, you know, we may just not have enough money for that. 
I don't know if we can really make that happen. There's nothing worse than somebody howling to death something you've come up with, is there? Will God make good on the promises he made? Does that mean he's going to make good on them right now? No, but he said today as it is today, don't harden your heart by failing to listen. That was the message. He didn't say God was going to at that moment do what he had promised to do. He said to live and believe on what God has spoken. The Israelites were impatient, frustrated with time. They were focused on getting immediate results rather than waiting to get what God intended. They were short-sighted, not embracing what was to come. And we're all like that. And the call for us is that in our waiting, in our frustration, in those times when we're going like, God, where are you? God's inviting you to hold on. He's inviting you to persist in your faith. He's inviting you to hold tight to the confession who is Jesus Christ. I mean, he told these believers, I'm going to come back and receive you again, right? All of the disciples except one died a martyr's death. They died believing that Jesus said, if you die, I'm going to raise you from the dead. You know why they believed that? Because they saw Jesus come back from the dead. And for you and me today, we're standing here in the same way. He is warning us to take care that there not be an evil, unbelieving heart that chooses to go against what a living God. In, in, in Hebrews 10, 31, he's going to address this again. How, would you want to fall into the hands of a living God? The same God of Psalm 95 who built the, the mountains and, and made the seas and formed the dry land, that same God, you want to fall into his hands? What, Israel, what Egypt would do is a far less challenge than what a living God can do. And that's the invite that he's giving them today. Watch out. In fact, I thought about asking Crosby if I could borrow his whistle. But then I thought to myself, I don't know where he's had that whistle, so I didn't want to put it in my mouth. And I'm just kidding, buddy. But I'm saying, you know, if you are at the beach, like we talked about a few weeks ago, talking about drifting away, when you're on the beach and the lifeguard is watching, and all of a sudden you hear the whistle blowing, right? You perk up and you look. Because that warning is supposed to tell you, hey, something's going on. Some people will ignore the whistle. But let me ask you a question. How many of you in this room have, have lived through a tornado? Like it came and, I mean, you were in the house and the tornado came over. Few of you have. Let me tell you, those of you that have, when a tornado siren goes off, you ready to act, right? You don't hesitate and you move. And just like uh, uh, Charles Stanley, or not Charles Stanley, Chuck Swindoll said, he said, when God speaks, you act. And it's the same thing. When that whistle blows, watch out and you act. But here's the cool part. Point number two, we must encourage one another against becoming hardened by sin. In fact, it's the deceitfulness of sin that he refers to there. Because he says, encourage one another day after day. Again, it's an imperative command in the second person plural, in the present tense. Guys, listen. Almost every commentator that I read as I studied this passage emphasized the same thing. You need to be in church. I know I'm going to probably get a little bit too close to some things, but I just, I just need to say this. Satan is very deceptive in the deceitfulness of sin. He distracts us, he gets us busy, and he makes it as if the body of Christ is on the list of about 
down about number nine or ten of all these other things. But if you're not careful and you're not doing life in the church, I'm not talking about just coming to a service. I'm not just talking about studying and reading your Bible. I'm talking about doing life on the daily with those who are of the body of Christ. Then the deceitfulness of sin has a greater advantage on your life. Listen, I get uncomfortable when I talk about accountability partners because this is why no one in, the, in this church, in this world, should have the permission to be the moral police in your life and pass judgment. I believe that with my whole heart. What I believe is an accountability partner is this right here, a parakletos who comes alongside, yes, that will identify, hey, bro, listen, man, you need to cut that out. That's gonna kill you. I talked to somebody the other day that I found out, it's a, an old acquaintance of mine, who had gotten into a habit where he was drinking about 24 beer a day. And he almost went into a diabetic coma. And out of love, I'd look at him and say, bro, how's that working for you? He, he made a life change, and great, gracefully so. And for you and me, we need people in our life to come along and kind of look at us and say, hey, how's that working for you? Or to reciprocate that and give somebody permission in our life to say, hey, how's that working for you? Why? Because what this passage says, listen to it again. Encourage one another day after day as it is still called today. Remember what does the day point back to? Hearing the voice of God. God is speaking to us through the gospel today. And if you're sitting in this room and you've heard this gospel message over and over again, maybe you've been in church 50 years and it's like a ping pong bouncing off a back wall. If you're lost in your sin, you are lost and you will go to a devil's hell someday. But Jesus has extended the gospel to you to save you from your sin and to go with no faith, to choose not to believe is a dangerous thing. That means your eternity is sealed, separated from God. Why would you want to hold on to that? What pleasures of sin is there to compare with the glories that God is going to bestow on you someday when you reach glory? You, you, I know you can't fathom it. You can't imagine it because you've never seen it. But God has promised it to be there. Read sometime the book of Revelation. The beauty and the majesty of what the city of God is going to be like. There's nothing in this world that will compare to that. And if you say, you know what, well, I just, I can't give up that habit. I can't give up those friends. You need a body of believers that are committed in grace to encourage you and to encourage me. Can we make a commitment like that? Can we check our pride at the door and not approach other people with judgmental attitudes, but in love and in grace and be willing to say, you know what, I want to come alongside of you because I want you to become the best you can be. And I want to encourage you as you grow as a disciple, or as we've heard up here today already, to become a disciple who's in, who is committed to making disciples. That same author I quoted earlier said this, we're on a mission with Jesus. There is no war-free zones where we can opt out of the church to pursue, pursue our own moralities, values, and agendas. If we're not gathering with King Jesus, then we're scattering. I know that's hard. But my, my question to you would be this. You know what, if, if, if church attendance for you is sporadic, what would it look like if for two months, this is one of those try me and see things, if for two months you said, you know what, I'm going to be in church at least on Wednesday or Sunday. 
Maybe for some of you, you know, you, you come to worship, but you just really haven't connected with anybody else. What if you said, for the next four weeks, I'm going to try to at least shake six people's hands and introduce myself so maybe I can get involved in a group. And vice versa, those of you that are in a group, if, we're, if our command is to watch out, guess what? We're to watch out for others. This isn't a self-focused message. This is actually an outward-focused message. We need to watch out for what other people are going through to help them, to encourage them. Because James is very clear. Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed in his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. I'm contending today that if we're connecting with other believers on a regular basis, the, the, the notion of sin diminishes. We need to be, I mean, we talk about that with reading the Word. When I read the Word, it keep, gives me a, a guard, it gives me a protection, it guards my heart against what Satan wants to throw at me, but we need one another. We need one another. Did you, when, you, when you looked at those pictures of that kiln earlier, and those Pakistanis spread out on that, on that carpeted area, trapped. Did you catch that? They're trapped there. They're basically indentured servants. But, it, but as the carpenter said, we've learned more about faith from them than we have ourselves. Blows my mind. Sometimes in the subtraction, God builds our faith up so much more than he does in the blessing. And so let me give you this last point because I know I'm going over time. We must hold firm our confession in Christ to stand with confidence. Let me reread verse 14. For we have become, this is perfect tense. Remember, he called them holy brothers. We have become, we have been made partakers of Christ. We have access to God through Christ, the better priest, and now the better Moses, the better deliverer. Moses brought them out of the land of Egypt, leading them to the promised land, and now we've got Christ leading us to glory. If we hold fast, that is conditional, the beginning of our assurance, it's the same word as the word nature in 1-3. It's like from above being made alike, firm, like a stepping stone until the end, the completion. Philippians 1-6 says this, for I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. God has a plan for each and every one of you in this room. You believe that? I can choose whether or not to get in line with that plan. So I need to watch out. And by encouraging others, I'm watching out for them. Why? So that then I can stand with confidence. Otherwise, my heart will grow hard. Years ago, Laura's cousin lost her husband. And he died, if I pronounce this correctly, from a condition called hypertrophic cardiomyopathy that is a tongue twister but it's basically a disease that the muscle cells begin to harden and what happens when a heart hardens it can't beat and if a heart can't beat it can't pump blood and if it can't pump blood you'll die because your body's not getting the oxygen and the nutrients that it needs folks when we allow an evil and unbelieving heart to be around us when we don't encourage one another about the deceitfulness of sin, then I can't stand with confidence. Therefore, I can't live the life that God intends for me to live. It all points back to Christ. It all goes back to Christ. 
We make a decision consciously every day that we get up. Are we going to believe or are we not going to believe? In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is being tempted. And the first thing Satan tempts him with is bread. He's been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. And do you remember Jesus' response? He says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Do you know where that verse comes from? It comes from Deuteronomy chapter 8. I love this. I love this. In fact, Caleb, y'all need to come on. Deuteronomy 8, 2, and 3. You shall remember all the ways which the Lord your God has led, led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you to know whether or not your heart was in the place it needed to be, whether you would keep his commandments or not. He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Did you catch that? All the grumbling and complaining about the food was because God wanted them to want him more. You and me today, Jesus Christ is the very word of God. And Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. Psalm 34, 8 says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Folks, I'm challenging you today. When I say trust the word to stand confidently, I mean, have you entrusted yourself to Christ? It's one thing to say you believe. It's another thing to put your life in the palm of his hands. So I see two things from this today. A call for mutual encouragement as a body and the daily discipline of personal perseverance. What would it look like every day? I don't know what you do the first thing in the morning when you get up. I don't know if you look at your phone or get a cup of coffee. But what if the first thing you utter is, Lord, give me the strength I need today to persevere in faith in you, to trust and to act on your word. And like I said earlier, maybe, I don't know where you, what your opinion is about church. Some of you come in here and you got church hurt, and that really stinks. I hate that. I hate when people tell me stories of how churches have abused them. It makes me angry, actually. But you know what? There are no perfect churches. There's no perfect people. We're a bunch of broken people ministering to broken people. So I'm going to open this altar. I want to invite you to stand. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, Crosby, Fred, and I will be down here on the front. Maybe you're here this morning and say, you know what, I'm just struggling and I need somebody to pray for me. And that's okay. We get weak. We get weak and we need somebody to help us during our times of doubt. But don't hesitate. Come. Maybe, you know what, this morning, maybe, maybe you need to repent. Maybe you need to repent this morning. That as I've, as I've shared this message today, and I have cried out, watch out. You know what? You go, well, you know what? There's sin in my life. And repentance means not just to ask for forgiveness. It means to turn away from it. And God's the only one that can give you the strength to do that. So as we sing, come. Come to this altar. Lay it before the Lord. Let us pray for you. And take these words, this second warning, to heart.